This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of John. We've been in a brand new series called The Gospel of John, Part 2. We started the book of John last year. We got into it about seven chapters. And this year, we're going to finish another seven chapters, and then we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back next year by the grace of God, should Jesus not return. And we'll do part three, which will be the final seven chapters. But if you have a Bible, please go with me to John chapter eight today. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If you were here last week, we covered an amazing passage of text talking about Jesus being the anointed one or the Messiah, the anointed one or the Messiah. The title of my message today is Jesus is the scandalous one, the scandalous one. We're going to talk about something scandalous today. Are you guys okay with scandal in the church? We're going to get into something a little scandalous. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. But let's go right into John Chapter 8, beginning with verse 2, and it says this, But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people, say all the people, all the people came to him, and he sat down and began, and began to teach them, or he taught them. Now I want to provide us with a little bit of context here, because how many of you guys know context matters, Okay. Context is king, as one person said. Jesus has just returned from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just right outside of Jerusalem. And he's sitting among the people in the temple courts. Okay, so in the temple courts, this is where everybody could go who was a Jew. Men, women, they all had access to Jesus. And this happened right after the final day of the Feast of Booths. Or as it's known in Hebrew, Sukkot. And Sukkot was a celebration of Israel's journey from the wilderness into promised land. And so in the wilderness, God had them stay in booths or tents. And so every year they would celebrate for a week this amazing feast where they commemorated and they celebrated God bringing them out of, out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan. And so this is what's been happening in the backdrop of this week. And Jesus has returned to the temple to teach, which meant that it would have been really packed with people still who hadn't gone home. And here's where we pick up with verse three, and it says this, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst of Jesus and all the people. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, just to be clear here, the actual law of Moses was in reference to a man and wife who were married. And it says nothing about this woman, whether she was married or not. So there's a high chance here that they're twisting the law because they're setting a trap for Jesus. The religious are setting a trap for Jesus. Can I tell you this? Religious people will always try to trap you. They'll always try to make you feel obligated. They'll put more duty on you. They'll try to trap you and trick you and steal from you and lie from you. Why? Because they're, they're lost and they're in darkness. And as we'll see, they're sons of servants of the devil. 
And they're trying to trap Jesus here. They're trying to put him into a corner that he can't escape from. If Jesus says, on the one hand, let her go, then he's essentially breaking the Mosaic law as they've come to interpret it. If Jesus says, go ahead and stone her, execute her, then he's breaking Roman law because in this period of time, the Romans occupied first century Jerusalem and they didn't permit any Jewish leaders, rabbis, teachers, or religious officials to put anybody to death for religious offenses. Additionally, if Jesus says, execute her here, he's no longer the kind of Messiah that forgives sin. He's no longer the person that he claimed he was. This would undermine Jesus' very authority as Messiah. It would contradict everything up into this chapter that he's already said that he alone can do. What do I mean by that? Well, in order to unpack this, go with me real quickly to the book of Luke. And we're going to pick up right there at chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. And here's what it says. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, here are the Pharisees again, okay? The religious leaders began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this has already occurred days, perhaps even weeks before this event here in John 8. And so the Pharisees are perplexed that here Jesus is basically taking ownership for the ability to forgive sins. This claim among the Jews would have been blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And here's what it goes on to say in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, a different scenario play out. And one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Okay, so the Pharisees are starting to kind of hear a little bit about what Jesus is doing. He's healing people. Signs and wonders are breaking out. He's teaching with authority and all kinds of crazy stuff is going on. So one of the Pharisees named Simon invites Jesus to his house. And so he asked Jesus to eat with him and he went in. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, this is kind of shorthand for a promiscuous woman, is what the writer is telegraphing to us. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was there at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Some of you guys have heard this story. So last week I spoke on Jesus being the anointed one, right? So he's the one who's been anointed with the Spirit of God. He goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He overcomes every tempt every challenge, every test. He comes out of the wilderness. He walks into the synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have been anointed to preach good news, to, to bring the captives out of captivity, to recover sight to the blind, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So this is what Jesus is anointed to do. And this promiscuous woman, this sinner, this woman of the city gets word that Jesus is in the house of a religious leader and she brings her most costly perfume and ointment with her and she begins to anoint Jesus the anointed one and here's what it goes on to say in verse 47 skipping down a little bit it says this therefore I tell you this is Jesus her sins which are many are forgiven Jesus goes on to tell this this parable to Simon the Pharisee about a, a money lender who has forgiven the debts of two different people and the debts of the two different people are different size amounts and so Jesus asked the Pharisee, okay, in the telling of this story, in the forgiving of these debts, who loved the, the person more, the one who had a little debt forgiven or the one who had a big debt forgiven? And Simon says, the one who had the bigger debt. And he goes, you are correct. And so then he says this, therefore I tell you, 
her sins, which are many, meaning the woman that's just anointed him, are many, she is forgiven. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then all the people that were there with Jesus in this moment are amazed. And they began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So here's two different instances that have already occurred before Jesus in the middle of the temple courts with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And this is important because remember, the underlining question of the Gospel of John at this point is whether or not Jesus actually is the Messiah. They don't know yet. Could this be the Christ is the question they're asking. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the anointed one? And, and even today there are people that still among us have questions about who Jesus is. And I would say Jesus has been portrayed all sorts of different ways. I can tell you this, he's not white, he doesn't have blue eyes and, and blonde hair. He was a Jewish Middle Eastern rabbi, and actually Isaiah says there was nothing really special about his appearance. But people still don't know about what it is or what kind of Messiah he is claiming to be. And this is the underlining theme that I want us to pick up on today. To use their words, who is this Messiah? Who is this Jesus who even forgives sins? So, this is the backdrop, okay? The Pharisees have come to test Jesus in this because by now, news about Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who forgives sins, all these claims that Jesus has made already have spread throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And so people are starting to hear about this and they're like, wait a second, there's a, a guy who claims to be able to forgive sins? So Jesus is gaining some notoriety for being quite scandalous. John chapter eight, verse six. Now let's get back to the gospel of John. And they said this to test him. I want you to underline that or swipe that or highlight that in your Bible. They said this to test Jesus that they might have some charge to bring against him. I would say to you today that the real person on trial today is not the woman caught in the act of adultery, it's Jesus. Jesus has been put on trial. He's been put to the test. He's, he's being accused here in the public court. I want you to, to see that, that charge brought against him, the accusations that have been brought against him. The word test here is a really interesting word. And I'm just going to geek out here for a moment and give you guys some Greek. But if you put that up there, Amy, the word test here is the Greek word parazzo. All right, parazzo. And it means to make trial of, literally to put someone on trial, like on a witness stand. And there's an accuser. It's, it's legal language. Okay, there's attorneys, there's accusers, there's someone on trial, there's a judge. And they're coming to Jesus to put him to the test, to put him literally on trial. It's actually the same word here, test, that we see in John 8, 6, is the same word in Matthew 4, 1, when it says that Jesus was tempted by the devil. It's the same Greek word, parazzo, and Jesus was put on trial by the devil. He was tested. Okay, are you guys catching? Are you guys tracking with me? So in both cases, Jesus is being put to the test. He's being tried by professional accusers, if you will. And I want you to see the parallel here between the work of the Pharisees and the work of the devil. John is telegraphing it to us as the reader. In John 8, 44, just a few verses down, we're going to get to that in just a couple weeks. 
He's going to refer to the Pharisees as sons of the devil or as children of Satan. That's how strong the language is here. And Jesus is throwing down. The Pharisees are throwing down. There's a court case unraveling. It's like, you know, drama. It's like, you know, all the the CSI and courtroom dramas that we all like to watch. That's what's going on here. I want you to get that picture in your head. Now, I'll point out here, there's, there's some scholarly disagreement about John 8 and whether or not uh, John truly wrote this passage, whether it belongs here or after Luke. Um, and, and there's disagreement about that. But the point is clear. The accuser has come to bring charges against the anointed one of God, Jesus. You guys, this is huge because it's setting up something. It's foreshadowing to us what Jesus would go on to do by way of the cross when he would be publicly put on trial for and willing to pay the penalty for our sin, for sins that he was innocent of, not guilty of, amen? So Jesus is purposefully stepping into the firing range here. And interesting, John chapter eight begins with people wanting to stone this woman and John eight ends with people wanting to stone Jesus. And we're gonna get to that in a couple of weeks, as I mentioned. Verse seven, And as they continued to ask Jesus, he stood up and said to them, remember, Jesus up until this point has been in the posture of a teacher. He's been sitting down. In Jewish culture, the teacher sits and the students rise. Now Jesus has left his position of teacher and he stands up and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more, Jesus bent down and he began to write on the ground. Now, I love this, you guys. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with Jesus, this is classic Jesus here. This is Jesus being the most Jesus-y, okay? They have come to set a trap for him, and they're quoting the book of the law at him, and you know his response is like, oh, you're gonna quote scripture to me? Oh, you're gonna throw the law at me? You think you're sinless, do you? Well, then go right ahead, pick up a stone and be my guest throw away. It's kind of like this moment, if you guys have seen in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, who's the lion, he's the Christ-like figure in the story, he's been captured, and they've set a trap for him, and and he says to the witch, who's kind of the, the enemy figure in the story, and he says, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when the book was written. It's this kind of moment that Jesus is is playing with here. And John in chapter one basically said it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things that were made were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. You guys, how was the law written? How was it made? By the very finger of God through According to John here, Jesus. And what is Jesus doing with his finger? He's writing in the ground. He's claiming his authority as God. He's writing on the ground with the same fingers that framed the heavens and the earth. You guys, this is so powerful. I don't want us to miss this. At this point, the hunter has now become the hunted. Those that tried to trap him have now become trapped, which is why they respond the way that they do in the very next verse, verse nine. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Say one by one. 
beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The truth is this. They were as guilty as the charges that they had brought against this woman. And they knew it. And they were without a defense. Game, set, and match. But the story doesn't stop there because Jesus is not done with the woman's heart yet. And I love this. And I want you guys to catch the spirit of this today. Because every single one of us is the woman in the story. Some of us want to be Jesus and we're not. (laughs) Some of us sometimes look a little more like the Pharisees. But every single one of us is the woman in this story. And I want you to now hear how Jesus cares for her heart. Verse 10 through 11. And Jesus stood up again off the ground. He's, he's risen up and he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You guys, this is what makes Jesus so scandalous in this story. This is why I'm referring to him as the scandalous one today. It wasn't the adulterous woman who was scandalous or her sultry affair. It was Jesus' love and his forgiveness and his grace that was at the heart of the real scandal of it all. Because the only one that had the absolute legal right and authority to stone her and judge her doesn't. He forgives her. He acquits her. He frees her instead. And that's the kind of Savior and Lord that he is. He's the only sinless one among them that could have have condemned her, but he doesn't because... As John chapter 3, verse 17 reminds us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You guys, Jesus hasn't come to condemn you. He hasn't come to condemn us. And if you grew up with a condemning parent or a condemning teacher or a condemning religious figure in your life, I want to say, welcome to a place where you can experience the freedom and the release of God over your life, where you will know his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And neither does he condemn you, neither do the people in this room condemn you. You are in a place where God accepts you right where you are. I want you to notice the order of something here. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Notice he doesn't say stop sinning, and I won't condemn you. But that's how we hear it in our religious minds. Well, I gotta get my act cleaned up first before I go to church and then Jesus will receive me. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Jesus receives you and accepts you. And then your heart and your act begin to become clean. Jesus speaks a word over you through his blood on the cross that that essentially this, you're clean. You're forgiven. Those sins have been dealt with once and for all. And I wish that we could grab a hold of that because it would change everything. It would change our appetite for the things that still bring us back to a life of sin and missing the mark and not flourishing when in reality, God hasn't condemned us so that we can go on flourishing. It's why Paul would say it this way in Romans 8 verses one through four. Therefore, there is no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Am I talking to anybody that's been set free today? He's set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You guys, we can't clean up our act. The law couldn't do it. All it could do is reveal to us our great need for the cross, our great need for a savior, our great need for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, our great need for the one who atones once and for all and then sat down at the right hand of the father. Religion would say, no, keep coming back, okay, and then run, and then keep coming back and run, and do this and do that and strive and try to impress God. And guess what, you guys? He's already finished the work. It's done. On the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. By sending his own son, it goes on to say in Romans, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's us, church. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but now according to the spirit. You see, Jesus meets every requirement of the law for sin by condemning sin, not people. Your sin has been condemned. You have not been condemned. That's good news. That's good news to those of us who know that we need a savior, amen? You wanna talk about scandalous? Jesus takes the very thing that drove a wedge between God and people and he sentences that thing, I-E-S-I-N, to death. He takes your self-inspired narrative, S-I-N, and he condemns it to death and he writes a new narrative, a new story with a new beginning that you're now alive in him. You've been made born again. You've been given a new nature filled with his spirit so that you can walk not according to the flesh and all of its desires and appetites, but walk according to the spirit and the power thereof. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not a gospel of sin management. It's not a gospel of trying to please your father. It's not a gospel of good works. It's a gospel of scandalous grace. And that's why we're here today because we're so excited and we celebrate what the Lord has done for us. Church, may courageous church be a people that at the epicenter always understand and celebrate his amazing, scandalous grace. What makes Christ's work on the cross so scandalous is not just that God chose to atone or die for our sins. It's that he didn't have to. God had zero obligation to fulfill his own requirements for his creation. You see, many today judge God according to their standards. They hold God according to their own law. When in reality, they violated every one of his good and perfect moral laws. Many today hold God accountable for the consequences of their action. And then they get angry with God when God doesn't meet their self-righteous demands. How arrogant of us to think that we have the right to hold God to our standards. But, but to the humble and contrite in heart, to the repentant sinner who knows that they've messed up, who knows that they fall short, who knows that they missed the mark, he says these words, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Therefore, go and sin no more. When your heart's been radically touched and changed by this amazing, scandalous grace. 
Your appetites no longer will be satisfied by the things of the world and the carnality of the flesh. And you will feed yourself with his word because his word is like life and truth. It's like living bread. It's living manna. It fills you. It gives you a new appetite. It recalibrates your desires for things that he originally created you to desire. He put in you eternity. That's an Ecclesiastes. He set eternity within your heart. So the, the idea of the temporal will never fulfill what it is that you were created for. Skiing those mountains will never fulfill what it is that you're created for. Partying in the city will never fulfill what it is that you're created for. Making a whole bunch of money and closing the deal will never fulfill what you're created for. Only eternity and only the eternal one can fulfill those innate desires. Billy Graham used to say, only God can fill the hole in your soul. <laughs> I like that. I still think that's good. Jesus doesn't diminish the reality or the consequences of sin because he doesn't have to. Jesus didn't have to tell the woman how awful a sinner he was. You know why? Because sin is its own punishment. It's its own prison. It's its own poison. One that he came to actually liberate us from. Amen? Religion says, clean up your act first, then God will love you. God says, I love you first, and by the blood of my son, I declare you clean. Remember what 1 John says, and I love it. It's real simple, 419, let's put it up there. We love because he first loved us. We now love because he first loved, because he first took our place because he removed the stain, because he pardoned the offense, because he bridged the gap, because he took the stones. Yes, every single one of those stones that was aimed at that adulterous woman were rightfully aimed at you and me. And Jesus gave his life and he stepped into the firing range and took every stone that was on that cross because Jesus is the scandalous one. And he's come that you and I would know his amazing scandalous grace. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.